Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. This episode of Restart contains some sensitive themes. If you need extra support, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. From Mamma Mia, welcome to Restart, the podcast where it's never too late to change everything. I'm your host, Madeline West. Two years ago, I hit Restart on my life. Packed up the family, moved to Byron Bay, split up with my partner of 15 years, father of my six kids, and I started life again. Since then, I have chosen to restart in many different ways. Restarting my career, my purpose, my identity. All of those were choices I made because I knew the hard work would be worth it. But today's restart was not one of choice. Today's restart is perhaps one of the biggest and it came without a choice. 20 years ago in June, it was a normal day on the set of Neighbours, done maybe 17 hours on set, jumped straight on a plane, flew up to Sydney. The next day I was going to be hosting a kids helpline charity. I arrived at 9.30, got to my hotel to find, lo and behold, the kitchen was closed and I was famished. Yes, I dined on your average soap, starlet's diet of jelly beans and black coffee. So I got up there and uh, spoke to the receptionist and they said, well, you know, you're on Oxford Street. Mind you, I'd never been on Oxford Street before, so this was something new. So there's all sorts of food outlets. There's, you know, takeaway places, there's little restaurants, there's convenience stores. So I went out there, tempted by the fruits of the deep fryer, but instead opted to go to a convenience store and look for something with some semblance of health and well-being. I don't know, there was probably corn chips and hummus involved, maybe a banana, probably a Kit Kat. I mean, come on, who can refuse a Kit Kat? So anyway, I've got my bits and pieces and I've gone back out into the street and I remember looking for the entry of my hotel. As I said earlier, I'd never been to Oxford Street before and I remembered that the receptionist had said it's right near the crossing, the traffic lights. So I'm looking for the traffic lights. I was standing next to a bus stop. I want to point out I was on the pavement. There's the bus stop, traffic lights, me on pavement. I looked left, I looked right, and then I was hit by a bus. Square in the head, so conclusively on my face, in fact, that I actually left a perfect imprint of my makeup on the bus. It was hilarious. About a week or two later, when I finally came around properly and the police who were investigating said, uh, we think we found the vehicle in question because you left your face on it. Yep, full set of foundation and mascara, lipstick, blush, the works on the windscreen of the bus. It was hilarious until I discovered the extent of my injuries. The point of impact, I was thrown a couple of feet and then landed on my face and skidded a few feet more along the pavement. So 
probably picked up a few pebbles, sticks and bits and pieces along the way, but I certainly left a fair bit of my epidermis behind. Yep, half my face scathed completely off. I had a crush injury at the point of impact. That's where the skin dies on impact. That required a skin graft from my butt. So in other words, I'm a butthead. Yeah, it's hilarious. My kids love that joke. I had burst all of the capillaries in my eyes. They were bright red. Three skull fractures, one that ran over the top of my skull, one that ran along the side and one that ran underneath my brain shelf. It, um, it actually leaked brain fluid into my throat. Yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with the unique flavour of brain fluid, it kind of tastes like now we're harking back into the past when fillings in teeth were still made of alloys and metal. And if you happen to chew on a piece of foil, that taste you'd get, that's what brain fluid tastes like. Apologies, anyone out there who's eating breakfast, lunch or dinner right now. So luckily that that fracture closed. If it hadn't, I would have had to have my skull sawn open and pulled down and an artificial shelf built under my brain. There were bubbles in my cerebral fluid around my brain. I lost my gross motor skills. I couldn't speak properly. I spoke in gibberish. When I thought that I was saying, hi, how are you? It sounded like I couldn't feed myself. Every time I tried to put a fork into my mouth, it stabbed me in the cheek or in, in, the, in the chest. And I lost my short-term memory. So I'd read a line and immediately forgot what I had just read. And the pain of the skull fractures refusing was monumental. I can't even begin to describe it. But all of that faded in comparison to what it did to what I perceived was most important, my appearance. It was probably about a week after I'd come into the hospital. And mind you, while I was lying in the gutter, someone stole my wallet. So I was delivered at St Vincent's as a Jane Doe. By some lucky quirk of fate, the producers of the Kids Helpline charity contacted my agent and said, um... Madeline hasn't come to dress rehearsal. And he had the presence of mind to call the neighbour staff who said, yeah, we put her on the plane. He then called around Sydney, the police stations and the hospitals, until he found St Vincent, which said, yeah, we've got a Jane Doe that kind of matches that description. She's a bit bit messed up. And he went in and found me there and insisted that rather than just be patched up on the spot, a plastic surgeon actually closed my injuries because otherwise it would have been considerably worse. But upon waking... And looking in the mirror, it was the first time I'd seen myself in the mirror for over a week. I did not recognise myself. My face had swollen up to twice its normal size. It was entirely black and blue. As I said earlier, I'd burst all the capillaries in my eyes. They were bright red, so it looked like some quasi-robocop. I'd lost... All the skin down one side of my face was just one massive scab. I'd broken half the teeth in my upper jaw. And in that moment, I wanted to die. I thought everything I have worked for to become an actress since I was five years old, gone, done and dusted, down the toilet. I thought, that's it for me. I'm done. I wanted a nurse to come in and slip me some sleeping pills and just let me slip away. That's how important my appearance was to me. 
at all of 21 years old. I made the mistake, and it's a mistake we commonly make, men, women, boys, girls, of thinking that the way we look is the most important thing about us, that our appearance is the sum total of all we have to offer the world. The fact is, and this is what I have learned, and I'm so grateful that I had that lesson in my formative years at all of 21, working in an industry that is defined predominantly by aesthetics, by what is on the outside, that I learned that the way we look makes up about 2% of who we are. And if we are to dilute or, in, in, in fact, condense everything we have, everything we have to offer the world, our hopes, our dreams, our intellect, our ambition, our compassion, what we want, what we would strive for, if we are to sacrifice all of that, to squeeze it down and make it fit into that tiny 2%, how much are we sacrificing? How much are we missing out on? How much is the whole world missing out on? But it's a mistake we all make. And so now I'm really proud to say that I'm really comfortable in the skin that I live in. It's done a damn good job. It's given me six beautiful children, but it's still strong enough to go out and plant trees and jump in waterfalls and dance and give the best hugs on the planet. My skin's only job is to fit me. I have to walk around in it every day. I might as well make my peace with it, but that doesn't make it easy. With an ageing face, when the template for what is considered normal, when the bar for what is considered attractive is getting higher and higher every day, thanks to perfectly filtered images on Instagram, which never own up what kind of tweaks and touch-ups they've had to achieve that perfect symmetry. It's getting increasingly harder to accept what we have, the skin that we are born into, what is normal as acceptable, when increasingly in this day and age, what is normal, what is considered normal, is an unattainable perfection. So we all want to know, you know, what do you do to your face? How do you feel about what you do to your face? It's a fair question to ask. And it's almost taboo to ask because we're constantly drowned in, with images of perfection. And with an ageing face, we all want to know what our contemporaries are doing. We all want to keep up with the Joneses. And it's a fair question when every time we go through Instagram or Facebook or open a magazine cover, we see a face of someone our age or older who looks half of our age. I've done it myself. I've stepped into an audition room with other actresses who I know are my age or older and they look 23, 24. I remember once working on a job with an American actor and I was 35 at the time and he said to me, so, like, what are you, like, you're 45? And I nearly fell over. I'm like, no, but, ah, I get it. You're used to working with women who've had all the tricks done, the tightening, the lift, the filler, the injectables, whatever, but that is not what a genuine 35-year-old face looks like. I'm not being preachy and I'm not being judgmental. All I'm saying is the most powerful thing you can do is believe in yourself, that your visage, as I said earlier, is about 2% of who you are. We all want to look good. We all want to feel our best. We all want to be attractive. But crikey Moses, I felt at times... This body has pushed out six kids. 
I've got to get home and make dinner. The last thing I want to worry about is the size of my waist and the size of my boobs and the size of my bust. And you know what? I just want to say that I totally get it. There are massive concerns out there in the world. We are living through cataclysmic times, whether it's bushfires or floods or COVID or there are wars being waged on a global scale right now. And we can all feel a bit silly and a bit vain worrying about how we look. But if you are taking care of what is in you, it shows on the outside. You do you. Do whatever makes you feel like the best version of yourself. And for me, some days, if I look in the mirror and I feel like I'm saggy and baggy and I'm going to need to wear an extra tight ponytail to make sure everything sits where it should or I have to wear three pairs of Spanx, so be it. There's no shame in that. The most attractive thing you can do is believe in yourself. Dr. Yumiko Kodota's appearance looks to be that of every parent's dream. A model student, top of her class in medical school, and now a cosmetic surgeon. But even though Yumiko is a surgeon who helps change people's appearance, she's also an advocate for making sure her patients understand the difference between confidence and self-esteem before you change your appearance. This is my very honest, searingly honest conversation with Dr. Yumiko Kadota. Yumiko, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mads. Now, your work, your area of specialty is reconstructive surgery. So you do some incredible work to make people comfortable with their appearance or where there has been a horrific accident, etc., and you're able to correct that. But the grand majority of, of cosmetic procedures or plastic procedures that we hear about and read about are elective. That's correct. So why do you think mankind feels a need to change their appearance to change their lives? I think there's a lot of factors here and I mm-hmm. think that a lot of it has to do with um, the images we see in the media and what we're fed as the beauty standard. And I just think that at the moment the beauty ideal is something that's unattainable and I think that with increasing technology, it's making it harder and harder to kind of meet these expectations. Hello filters, hello Snapchat. Absolutely. (laughs) And Photoshop and Facetune. You know, in the past, I remember 10 years ago, we used to talk about magazines doing airbrushing, but it's kind of exploded since then because Ah. it's so accessible to the everyday person. We don't need airbrushing software on our computers. It's on our phones. We have apps to change how we look. And We're just so used to all these filters that we don't know what's normal anymore. And accessibility is a key word because it does feel like you can have quite invasive procedures done at any beauty salon anywhere on the main street. That's right. You can just go into a shopping mall. (laughs) It's just so easy. So what are the systems of checks and balances there? Because these are procedures that surely, like yourself, you should be a qualified surgeon to perform. 
So at the moment with cosmetic injectables, you either need to be a nurse or a doctor. So anyone with a medical degree, anyone with a nursing degree can potentially become an injector. Okay. And does that mean that every single little shop front that's offering injectables has a nurse at the helm or should have a nurse at the helm? It should be a nurse at least. Okay. Yeah. And that nurse has to be working under, under a doctor. So there's always a doctor somewhere. Right, who's either writing a referral or... or writing the script for the script. fillers, yeah. Okay, well, that's reassuring. I really want to ask, as mm-hmm. someone who has suffered from mental health issues, yeah. is there a system to ensure that patients coming in mm. requesting these invasive procedures, whether you can gauge whether they are fit to actually undertake them? That is absolutely the responsibility of the doctor treating the patient. Mm -hmm. When you do your assessment, in order for a patient to give their informed consent for a procedure, you have to be convinced that they're of sound mind. So if there's any indication that there might be dysmorphia or other psychological issues, then it's the responsibility of the doctor to say, I can't offer you that treatment. Does it happen though? Not always. Right. doesn't always happen. But if you are an ethical medical practitioner, what you should do is to then refer that patient onto a psychologist or a psychiatrist for further assessment and support before revisiting the idea of the procedure. Because mm-hmm. there are lots of people out there who do have psychological issues associated with appearance. And As a doctor, you don't want to be feeding into those vulnerabilities and making the problem worse. Which it can, and I've seen it become a slippery slope. It is, Particularly in my profession where someone can doesn't look like themselves Mm. anymore, if we're honest. Yeah. And maybe they wanted to depart from being themselves in the first place. Mm. Maybe that's why a lot of people become actors. I don't know. (laughs) But it it can be a concern when the departure is so extreme. Mm. Because like you said, it is the doctor's responsibility to determine whether someone is mentally fit to undergo a procedure. So is there ever a point where you can refuse a procedure? Because, I mean, I see people walking around on the the high Mm. street and I think, how did you get to that point like if someone comes in Mm. and they want a complete overhaul yes and to look at them Mm. you might say well you're really quite lovely but I can see that you've gone through a divorce or you're in the midst of a trauma or does happen can you refuse them yeah absolutely so you can yeah and I do and you do yeah all the time. So, you know, for example, I had a young male patient who wanted bigger lips and his lips are already huge. I knew that it wouldn't be an appropriate thing to do. There was already too much filler in there. So they were full of filler and he wanted them even Even bigger. bigger. Yeah. And it was already out of proportion to his face. So what I like to do is try and make it less judgmental. Don't use judgmental words or emotive words mm-hmm. and keep it purely clinical. If I see that there is so much filler that it's starting to migrate out of the lip, I'll use technical words. I'll just say I can... From assessing your face, I can see that there's some filler migration, so it would be inappropriate for me to add more volume. So keep it clinical rather than making it a judgment about his choices that he's made to get to that point. Yeah. And so just from my professional standpoint, I say, you know, I can't offer you that treatment. And, I, and I'll even say, if anything, I would recommend dissolving those lips because I can see that there's too much in there. Mm. So I think that you do need to objectively assess someone's face, first of all, and to see whether it's appropriate or not. 
And then you also have to address kind of the underlying issues and, and that patient's state of mind to get there, to make sure that they're not overdoing it with the yeah. treatments and, and not realising that they're, they're getting too much. Because I guess that could be the genesis of body dysmorphia. If it can, you're yeah. looking in the mirror and going, well, that looks good, but if I just went that bit bigger, mm-hmm. that their whole objective viewpoint of themselves has changed. Like it does. We all look in the mirror and yeah. we don't necessarily see what anyone else sees. No. <laughs> I think we definitely scrutinise our own faces yeah. more than anyone else would. Ethically, how the hell does someone end up like Jocelyn mm. Wildenstein? For those who don't know her, she's the cat woman in America who has <laughs> yes. got a face so full, yeah, yeah. so full of filler and mm. procedures and tightenings. How does that happen if you, like you say, mm. the medical profession is ethics bound to determine when someone has had too much? Well, obviously someone had to do it. So there was yeah. a doctor out there who thought it was okay, okay to do it. And, and that's the thing. You talked about profits before and some doctors – do kind of they are driven by money mm. and unfortunately because there are a few doctors like that it does kind of affect the reputation of everybody else in the industry yes. and so you know there there are plenty of good ethical doctors I do want to say that I have other colleagues who work in this cosmetic space who who wouldn't agree to doing treatment on someone who might look like that but there are others who will say yep give me the cash I'll do it for you and not you know, think that it's it's the wrong thing. So do you, have you ever had to fix a botched procedure? Yes, I have. Oh, God. Can yeah. you, do you want to break it down for us? Can you give us an example? Um, it was just badly done filler, really. Just mm-hmm. filler in the in the wrong spots around the lip. So so how do you how do you undo it? Is it easy? Yeah, to you can undo? dissolve it. You can dissolve it. So there's an enzyme. It's called hyaluronidase, which breaks right. down the fillers. And so you need to do that first to get rid of all the filler that's in there. And then after the filler's gone, if the patient wants it redone, you can put filler back in and do it after right. it's gone. And then do it in the right place, <laughs> in the right amount. And it Does that- it damage the existing, I mean, because skin has a certain degree of elasticity. Yes. Because we age, the collagen breaks down. Can you get to a point where it's so overstretched? That definitely, yeah. definitely. Oh, it, it's kind oh. of like a rubber band, you know. You you can stretch it and it, it'll and release it, but at some point, it's gonna stop retracting back if you stretched it too far. Yeah, that kind of thing. So once the tissues are stretched too far, then it's not gonna retract, and so that's why you can't put too much filler in at any one time. Mm-hmm. So for example, even people who want really big lips, like no judgment. If you want big lips, you want big lips. Our suggestion would always be to do a little bit at a time and don't don't put too much in one go. Otherwise, it it's too quick and too much stretching in the one go, and then the tissues don't go back to normal. So yeah. And yeah. go, I know what that, that's like. I've had six kids. The, uh, uh, yeah. the skin on the old belly is no longer banned. Exactly the same concept, same yeah. thing. Have you ever had any procedures done? Yes. Yeah, I've yeah. had fillers to my face. Okay. So uh, what is that? I mean, because I look at you and yeah. you've just got this beautiful, smooth, gorgeous, glowing skin. Thank so you. what is what is that involved? Um, Tell me. I yeah, need to know. Sure. <laughs> and, and it's funny how we were, you know, before recording this, talking about the male gaze because everything I've done has nothing to do with the male gaze because I did my fillers, ah. went home, my boyfriend had no idea what I had done. He didn't know that I had anything done. I still looked the same to him. But, for example, I, I had a little bit of um, filler to my chin. Yeah. I, I had no chin before. You know, it's very common in Asian faces to have a receded chin and I just wanted to have a bit more balance when I look at my profile you know do you want some of mine because I'm German and I've got like this jawbone between (laughs) us will be the perfect balance perfect (laughs) yeah I mean and 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 again I'm talking about confidence and self-esteem I've always had a good self-esteem I know Mm. what I'm you know 
that I'm a good person. I have good kind of self value and self worth. But I feel a bit more confident now with with a little bit more filler much, and I feel like it's more balanced. Even though probably no one has noticed. I don't think、mm. any of my friends or you know my boyfriend didn't even notice. But when I, I know it's silly because I whoever looks at their own profile. But when I do, you know, see myself in photos, which I guess again is a reflection of current society. I I am a bit more comfortable with like side shots of my face because I'm like,、yeah. oh yeah, I've got a little chinny chin chin now, which I didn't have before. Billy broke, Billy goat grub. Yeah, so but that from, is. But、yeah. we've always done that historically. You know,、yeah. we've always captured art yes, in、yep. well, images like real、mm. life. In art, yeah, and I suppose that's what I'd like to see more of. This、mm. acknowledgement that see that that's a piece of art. Looking out that window, that's the landscape. And、mm. sometimes it's rainy, and sometimes it's cloudy, and、yeah. sometimes all the leaves are dead on the tree. But that's real life. But this painting will never change. It's perfect.、Mm. It's been perfected. But again, like you said, so much of what we project as、mm. beauty, the perfect image, comes down to the male gaze, and yeah, and. As a practicing surgeon, you know that it's only eleven percent of surgeons are women. I, yet, I sure do. <laughs> yeah, yet the grand majority of、yeah. people requesting cosmetics procedures are women. Yes, and it's being performed by men. Correct. So、yeah. all recommendations and advice they're receiving is coming from the male gaze. We know it should be objective,、mm-hmm. but. We are all drawn to certain characteristics, certain、yeah. beauty standards. Do you think the proliferation of male surgeons、mm-hmm. has an impact or influences the type of care given, or most importantly, the recommendations given to patients? Oh, definitely. I mean, I see so much misogyny in plastic、yeah. surgery and in cosmetic. So what do you mean? Can you give me an example? Like for example, I've heard surgeons say, like you know, while we're doing a breast implant surgery, oh, this is gonna be good. She can give her boyfriend a hot dog or a motorboat, something like that. And I just think, right? <laughs> what? That's that. It's it's very sexualized, and so you know, surgeons say things like that out loud, and I just think. So even laying on it. I'm going、yeah. to call it the cutting room table,、yeah. not the cutting room floor. Anesthetist. Someone is still an object.、Patient. Yeah, the women are objectified on the table, and when I hear comments like that, it gives me the ick. I think you know, they are creating bodies and faces that appeal to them, and、mm. it's less about what the woman wants and more about what the man sees as attractive to him. And so sometimes there is a bit of a, you know, a difference there. <laughs> Do you, do you ever hear、um, judgments of a woman's body、mm-hmm. pre-surgery and post-surgery? Like this sense that、mm. surgeons playing God? I guess that's the question. <laughs> this sense that I'm going to make you suddenly worthwhile by doing、yeah. this, that, or the other. Definitely, there is.、Um, There's power to language,、yeah. and the way that the surgeon conducts the consultation is very important because、mm. it, there's a lot of intent behind the words, and the and I guess the intent behind having the surgery done, making sure that it's for the right reasons. You know, it, you know, for example, for you know, we we talked about the stretching belly after pregnancy.、Yeah. A, a lot of women do have tummy tucks after pregnancy, and sometimes you, you can get infections underneath the skin flap,、oh. and There's all sorts of issues involved with that, but I guess you know, and, and, and women want to feel good in their clothes. They, and、yep. the excess skin, you you can't really get rid of it in any other way. So if women choose to have that surgery, then you know it's their choice. Yeah. And I think that at the moment, it's not just men, but 
other women judge women for having work done. There's also, apart from men being misogynistic, there's a lot of internalized misogyny among women as well. I mean, recently there was a pop star who posted a photo of Madonna and completely trashed her for the work she had done. And I was like, just leave Madonna alone. Uh. If she wants to have work done, that's her choice. And then she kind of doubled down by posting a, a photo of another pop star saying, you know, I think it was Joni Mitchell saying, oh, he's an example of someone who's chosen to age gracefully and this is beautiful. And I think, you know what, if you call yourself a feminist, then you have to accept the choices of women. You can't judge. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't judge a woman for having procedures done. If she wants to have the procedures and it makes her feel good, then let her do those procedures. How about, you know, who are we to judge who can and cannot get cosmetic procedures done? As long as it's for them, and it's done in an ethical way with a you know a good surgeon looking after them yeah. let them let them get what they want so i do see a lot of kind of women taking down other women as well when it comes to this i know thing. why are we sometimes in this age where <laughs> women are so- finally starting to get a bit more power yeah. we pull each other down yeah. and i look, i have to be honest i do mm-hmm. feel that working in the in the public gaze that my skin I live in my skin, mm. so it has to fit me and yeah. correlate with what I believe and what yeah. my value system is and what anyone else thinks of me is not my business. But yeah. if what they think of me affects how, what they think of themselves, mm. then it does become my business. And so yeah, the best thing I can do yeah. is just go, you know what, I would like to do this. I haven't done this. Mm. This is my reality. But I believe that the most attractive thing I can do is believe in myself, yeah. whatever packaging I come in. and. What you were saying earlier about the male gaze in surgery really interested me because I had mm. my, my boobs reduced mm-hmm. after I finished breastfeeding my twins. So that yep. was six kids I'd breastfed. Wow. I've been very large breasted. And um, when I first went in for a consultation, had a lovely male surgeon who said, Why would you do that? Mm. Like, because when I jog, I slap myself in the face <laughs> and it's not with my hands. But um, yeah. uh, post procedure, I kind of regret it that. Mm. Yes, I did it. I made that decision. I felt informed by the decision. Okay. But in the aftermath, I don't know that it was necessary. It's done now. It is what mm. it is. But I do kind of feel the way it was made, the way that they are was directed towards appealing to a male gaze mm. notion of what is a sexy breast. Yeah. Because I do sometimes feel they don't quite fit on this body. I don't know if I've not got the right language. No, no, but I, I know what you they're mean. They're just kind of yeah. than I thought that I would be. I kind of look at them sometimes and go, they do not like the breasts of a woman who's breastfed <laughs> six kids. And I'm proud yeah, that I breastfed six course. kids. My yeah. body is a roadmap of mm. where I've been and where I'm going and what I've experienced. And that makes me feel proud. I found that chat with Dr. Yumiko to be so inspiring and I've really walked away. I want a tattoo on my forehead, the quotation that confidence is how you interact with others and self-esteem is how you value yourself internally. It is so important to remember that and I know we live in a day and age that is so defined by appearance, so defined by aesthetic. Our whole value system seems to be turn on the dime of how people perceive us and that perception is often based when you walk into the room on the size of your waist, the size of your breasts, the size of your butt. We're sending out a generation of young people for whom 
everything they have to offer is so diluted first and foremost by how they look. And you know what? I'm going to call it out because I'm a woman. I've been put through the system. I know I'm talking to every woman out there. I'm talking to men out there. I'm talking to boys. I'm talking to girls. I'm talking to the generations to the come and the ones that gone before. Now is the time to change. All of you out there, girls, boys, everyone who identifies in between, all of you who are desperately primping, pimping, punishing yourselves, laboring to make yourself insta-ready, editing your selfies, all for a world that tells you your nose doesn't seem to fit your face, that your butt's too big, those boobs are too small, where is your waist, where's your perfect hair, where's your perfect teeth, your perfect mani-pedi who judges you, who, who, who wants to qualify your IQ in inverse proportion to the size of your boobs. Call it BS, call it for what it is. It is bull beep. I encourage you to do that. I'm calling it BS, you do the same because that glass ceiling out there is not defined by your appearance. It's yours for the breaking. At the end of the day, the most attractive quality you can possess is belief in yourself. Self-esteem, like Dr. Yumiko says, comes from how you value yourself internally. And confidence is how you interact with others. If you believe in yourself, others will do the same. Thanks for listening to this episode of Restart. We'll be back next week with more. This episode was produced by Emmeline Peterson. The executive producer is Tia Usage. Restart was created by me, Madeline West, Holly Wainwright and Lise Ratliff. And I'll see you on the Mamma Mia app. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Nobody, 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 nobody speaks to me like Mamma Mia.